0: You definitely know about The Dig, since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig, but you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash Catalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Dig Catalyst. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's incredible and makes me feel incredibly old that Occupy Wall Street took off 10 years ago. It happened at a moment when no one thought that such a thing was possible. The left, after all, had been in a state of near irrelevancy for decades. The anti-globalization movement that began in the late 90s and the Iraq War movement had boomed and then fizzled. And even during those brief booms, the left's assumed posture and ambition was to dissent and oppose, the idea that the point is to win, power, and govern to transform society, such a commonplace premise on the left today, was not on the table. It was almost unimaginable. Occupy generated a ton of debate and criticism on the left at the time, and also in the years after. But looking back a decade, it's impossible to imagine the renewed U.S. left that we have today coming into existence without Occupy and the cycle of social movements that Occupy kicked off. And then, of course, the Bernie campaigns, which spoke Occupy's language of class war against the 1%.
1: the human might oh, is! What the, the human, human might is! We came to a consensus on the document called the Declaration of the Occupation of New York City. Our process is direct democracy! So, the chairman, as you know, there are people demonstrating against Wall Street in New York City and
0: other cities around the country, and I think the perception on the part of these demonstrators and millions of other Americans, is that as a result of the greed, the recklessness, and the illegal behavior on Wall Street, we were plunged into this horrendous recession we're currently in. Do you agree with that assessment? Today, I'm discussing Occupy, what happened then and its legacy, with Astra Taylor. Before we get started, this podcast is supported by listeners. Listeners just like you. Well, listeners just like you and also publishers like Verso, but it is mainly supported by listeners just like you, supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you want to ensure that we, the dig, exist for the long haul, please make a contribution. If that contribution is at least $10 a month, we will send you a book or books or a tote bag or mug in the mail. And whatever the size of your contribution, we'll send you a copy of our new weekly newsletter by email. Our new weekly newsletter is excellent. Take a minute to contribute now and receive our new email newsletter. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. I should also mention that this episode of The Dig was developed as part of a collective of podcasts brought together to explore the legacy of Occupy in light of the 10-year anniversary. Through this project, you can also hear analysis on the impact of Occupy from podcasts like Belabored and New Dawn. The producing partners for this project are the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation's New York office and the New School's Milano program. I encourage you to learn more and to listen to some of the other episodes by visiting rosalux.nyc/occupy. Rosalux, L-U-X, dot N-Y-C, slash Occupy. That's slash Occupy. Okay, here's Astra Taylor, a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is co-founder of The Debt Collective, director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? and You Are Not Alone, the author of books, including Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, and most recently, Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. Astra is also, of course, a regular guest host here on The Dig. Astra Taylor, welcome back to The Dig as a guest.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan.
0: It's hard to know where to begin this interview about Occupy. It began on September 17th, 2011 in Zuccotti Park and ended on November 15th when the NYPD evicted protesters by force. So I guess let's start just by setting the scene. What is Zuccotti Park and what happened there on September 17th, 10 years ago?
1: Zuccotti Park is a little plaza a few blocks north from the iconic Charging Bull statue in Lower Manhattan, the statue that really symbolizes Wall Street. It's kind of an unassuming space. It's granite, there are these raised planters, with some trees and some sort of benches, and its eastern uh, side runs along Broadway. So in that sense, it's a highly visible Plaza and it kind of sloped downwards to the west side. So it almost had this sort of natural space where you could kind of stand, not quite on a stage, but, but a little bit elevated. The other important thing to note about Zuccotti Park is that it's not really a park. It wasn't a, a public park because public parks in New York City close, I think, at midnight. It was a kind of quasi public park, a private public partnership. Owned by Brookfield properties. And because of this quirk of ownership, it was open 24 hours a day. So Zuccotti Park had been scoped out by part of uh, the, the group that was planning Occupy Wall Street in New York City. I think it was like their third or fourth choice as a place for an encampment, but it ended up being this the spot that we marched to that morning, or maybe it was the afternoon. I'm I'm, I'm confused. It might have been late, late morning, early afternoon. That we walked north from the Trojan Bull Statue, and I remember asking someone, "Where are we going?" And they said, "I don't know, Zucchini Park." <laughs> and we walked a few blocks in a very kind of organized fashion. I think we chanted a bit, but it was pretty straightforward. And we flooded into Zucchini Park, and basically within minutes, you know, we sat down in these little groups, mini assemblies, and started talking about why we were there and and what issues were impacting us and uh, this question of what was our one demand, uh, and and the plan was to occupy Wall Street. And what was amazing is that people did it, and they were there for two months until they were evicted by Mayor Bloomberg uh, as part of a national crackdown on occupies across the country. And so that, that was how the morning began as we, we marched up in a very orderly fashion to Zucchini Park.
0: <laughs> Sociologist Ruth Milkman and co-authors wrote, quote, OWS was not a spontaneous movement that appeared out of nowhere. It was carefully planned by a group of experienced political activists, newly inspired by the Arab Spring and the surge of mass protest around the world in the first half of 2011. That may be true, but what Occupy became went well beyond anything that planners had imagined, and many people who became active participants didn't have much political experience at all, particularly as occupation spread beyond New York to cities all over the place. Meanwhile, most everyone on the left at the time, as far as I can recall, was absolutely shocked that Occupy took off and exploded the way that it did. What did Occupy seem like at the beginning? What did you make of it? And then what did it become?
1: I mean, the the one thing is that it was planned, it had been planned for months by a group calling themselves the New York General Assembly. And this was a small rotating group of a few dozen folks, if that. One of them was my good friend, David Graper, the late and great anthropologist and writer who would really you know, kind of come into national prominence during Occupy Wall Street, which coincided with the publication of his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, that was an international bestseller. And so it was It was planned. I mean, they had different working groups within this assembly. They focused on sort of media, communications. They came up with the slogan, we are the 99%, the frame of the 99%. They actually decided in those meetings, which happened weekly in Tompkins Square Park, they decided not to have demands for strategic reasons. And we can get into that because I think they were right. And they had a tactical group. It was this group that had had scouted Zuccotti Park and knew that it was there and had actually knew about its legal status. There was even a group of them that did a trial run where they tried to to spend the night at the New York Stock Exchange, sleeping on the sidewalk. And the results were pretty bad. I think nine people got arrested. So it wasn't very promising. So David Graber, you know, was very direct. I mean, he's said in interviews, I think he even said in the Milkman piece that you just referenced, you know, I didn't think we'd make it through the night. I thought we'd get arrested. And that was what I thought as well, because I had spent the odds in New York City protesting under the shadow of the war on terror, when, you know, you would, it just felt like you would, you know, come into public space and be kettled. (laughs) Like there was impossible to kind of get a critical mass. I mean, maybe you'd be shunted into a free speech pen, Uh, gatherings of over 20 people were illegal. So, I mean, and this was not a group that was asking for a permit, right? So I on the one hand, yes, this group was planning an occupation, but I don't think they thought they were going to make it through the night. It's also important to give the context. I mean, and you mentioned the Arab Spring. You know, if we think of that as the beginning of Occupy, then things actually kick up, kick off in Tunisia in December of 2010, when a vegetable seller named Mohamed Bouazizi, he was being harassed by the police, and in protest, you know, he emoliated himself. And that energy was circulating around the globe. And so Occupy felt, it felt really linked to the game, you know. Uh, Of course, there was also the financial crisis that it was responding to. Uh, And so there had been a call from Adbusters, the Canadian magazine, and it was about as minimal as you could get. The call was, you know, Occupy Wall Street, September 17th. Bring a tent, stay for months.
0: And there was a little dancer on top of the Wall Street bull.
1: Yeah, and it said you know it, it said twenty thousand people, the people who are planning Occupy Wall Street were like stay for months with twenty thousand people. I mean you know <laughs> they it was totally disconnected from from reality on the ground, and so they set their own ambitions. They you know set their own their own terms. I mean September seventeenth was completely arbitrary. It was picked because it was the birthday of one of the editors of Adbuster's mother, right? Like I mean it was just it was completely random. And the fact that it took off was a testament to the folks who were planning it, some of whom included people who were kind of online rabble-rousers and connected to anonymous, which was another big social trend at the time. You know, it was in a way the most vibrant political force in the United States, which I think is a real contrast to where we are now. So there were sort of people who were trying to organize and translate online discontent and rebelliousness into offline action, which is always difficult. And it just felt very improbable that it would take off. The other thing I'll say is context is that there there were attempts in that period to mobilize movements against Wall Street. There had been a multi-week occupation called Bloombergville that was targeting the city budget and the mayor that lasted a couple weeks but definitely didn't grab national headlines. There had been a massive march in uh, May of 2011, I went to it, I can't even remember it, but I know I went to it from emails, but it was so boring that I don't even have a memory of it, but it had lots of great demands. I mean, a, a huge number of people in comparison to those early days that Occupy showed up and yet it didn't do anything, you know, in terms of, of lighting a fire. So it, it was interesting. I, I don't know what it was about Occupy, but it was. I'm sure that it had to do with the audacity of it and the fact people just stayed put.
0: To step back for a sec, what was it about the state of the left at that time, at the end of the aughts, that made Occupy's explosive growth so surprising to most of us who'd been on the left for a little bit?
1: Dan, this is where I have to also um, invoke my privilege as a DIG co-host, because I I think you and I both really recall how barren (laughs) the left was in those days, right? I mean, it was was demoralized, beaten down, sidelined. It kind of reveled in its own powerlessness, right? I mean, there was, um, I'll, I'll never forget. And I, I wrote about this at the time. I wrote, I wrote about it in essays. I wrote it in emails to friends. But what really struck me that first day at Occupy Wall Street, September 17th, even though there was probably only 400 people, I didn't know them all. You know, I knew 10 of them maybe 20 of them. I mean, for me to see all these fresh faces, even though objectively it wasn't very many, was astonishing.
0: They weren't the same old people from the same meetings and the same tiny protests.
1: Exactly. And so I, I was like, wow, something's going on. There's there's new people here. I mean, you mentioned this, right, that a lot of people who gravitated to Zagadi Park were, were neophytes. They were new to activism. And in a way I was too, I mean, I wasn't new to the left. I had been on the quote unquote New York left for a long time, but I hadn't had a social movement to test myself with, to learn with, right. To be part of, to actually go to move from being intellectually a leftist to like being in solidarity and being part of a movement because there were no movements, so to speak of, yeah, I mentioned it already, but definitely the post nine 11 atmosphere was tremendous. I mean, it, it squelched the global justice movement, which I caught sort of a tail end of. I think you and I both protested in Washington D.C. against the IMF. A sixteen. A sixteen, right? We were both there, and then it was over. It just, you know, it just dissipated, and the anti-war movement sort of never really got its footing. And you know, even when we managed to produce these huge crowds, we were dismissed as a focus group. And so the message from the establishment was really, you know, don't even bother. <laughs> you know, don't bother protesting. Um, And so one thing I think Occupy did, inspired by what was going on in the wider world, was it put defiant protests back on the map. It said, no, don't ask for permits. Don't engage in these kind of like predictable little protests where you come and you stand in the free free speech zone. Push the envelope and, you know, have real energy in in your actions. Uh, So it, it felt really powerful. It felt powerful to be there under the shadow of the Freedom Tower in lower Manhattan, 10 years after September 11th, and say, you know, we're going to change the political atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I definitely think it. one reason it took off was because it wasn't overly slick or focus grouped. It was messy in a way that's really different from the sorts of heavily choreographed media stunts that are so common among the more non-profitized corners of the progressive left, including groups who are fighting for great things, etc., occupied it seemed authentic. And I think that's a reminder for those of us who are a bit older than today's median socialist. to, even as I think it's important for us older people, older even if we're just barely around 40, even as we try to, it's even though it's fine, I think, and useful for us to impart some wisdom and historical context to people who are newer to the left, to not rigidly or cynically presume that we always know for certain what will work and what won't. Because when it came to Occupy, most of us movement veterans had no clue what was about to happen.
1: I totally, I totally agree with that. I think that was one of Occupy's first lessons for me. It was one of the first lessons in Imparted was, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> and that in that uncertainty is possibility. And Occupy was authentic. I mean, it was to me, and I don't think I'm in lo- alone in this. It was such a revelation to go to this space. And on the one hand, it was a space of outrage. It was a, a space where all of us who were angry could come and meet. But it was also a space of imagination. It was a space where your ideas could take off. It was a space of camaraderie where you could commune with people and have all of these strange and interesting conversations with strangers. And life is messy. So, you know, in that, authenticity. And in that crowd, there were all sorts of weird elements. There were all sorts of problems. The problems became more apparent as the weeks went on, but that uh, it was like a magnet. Like some of us just could not stop going there because it was alive. And that energy is so powerful. And I think, you know, I, I, at the time was part of a kind of tendency. I wouldn't call it a faction because we weren't organized. I was part of a tendency that thought I want to be part of a left that wields power. I was never sort of I was friends with David Graeber. He recruited me not only to Occupy Wall Street, but to the, uh, the nascent debt resistance movement that I have, I have kept organizing with. But I wanted some structure, some discipline, you know, some strategy. I wanted to change. I want and I wanted to I want to change the balance of power. You know, I wanted a socialist left. And so, you know, 10 years later, what I want to do is balance those criticisms of Occupy and those those feelings that of the left, I wanted to see with the, with a kind of homage to the fact that it's horizontalist, open characteristic actually was powerful too, right? Like you have to have both because if you want to really, if you want to engage people, it's going to be a mess.
0: Occupy, we already mentioned it was inspired by the Arab Spring, of course, but also the movement of the squares in Greece and Spain and also in the US, the mass protests and occupation of the Wisconsin state capitol in Madison, defending public sector collective bargaining rights against Governor Scott Walker, which began in February 2011. And then you also just mentioned Bloombergville, which was, I think, less nationally prominent than the protests in Madison, but were a big deal in New York. And I remember around the time of Madison that this phone number went out for a pizza place, and you could call and order pizza for Wisconsin protesters, and pizzas were just pouring in From all over the country. Thea and I ordered one from Philly. And there was this really deep desire by 2011, I think, especially watching what was going on around the world, a deep desire on the left for the left to take some sort of major action in response to the economic crisis. Because this is years after the crisis hit, but it kept seeming, especially after 2010, like it just wasn't happening. At scale, And that, in fact, most of the energy provoked by the financial crisis had been picked up by the political right. And so, the initial liberal and left energies responding to the crash and crisis and to the entirety of George W. Bush's disastrous presidency, it mostly went into the Obama campaign initially. But then Wall Street got bailed out. Obama offered them impunity. As he put it to bank executives infamously, quote, my administration is the only thing between you and the pitchforks. And it was this whole dynamic that the left kind of didn't have the wind at its back at all. And the Tea Party moved in and took advantage of scapegoating underwater homeowners getting bailed out for the crisis, even though such a bailout never happened, scapegoating them and all sorts of other purported parasites. How was it that the right initially, before Occupy finally took off, that the right initially managed to strike first in politically exploiting a banking crisis, something that you'd think the left would be all over?
1: It was unbearable to go through. <laughs> it, was, it was just so deeply upsetting, right? So the Tea Party took off in
0: 2009.
1: and nine. Nine, yes. And, and I believe it was tax day of that year. So April 15th, they had these national protests and, you know, it's quite, it's popular and it's not totally wrong to describe the Tea Party in, as an astroturf group, but, you know, following the sociologist data scotch poll, I think you can make a case that it was a real grassroots movement too. And hundreds of thousands of people across the country were out. And you're absolutely right. I mean, they were pointing an angry finger at the wrong target. I mean, specifically pointing it at black mortgage holders, like the biggest victims of the financial crisis. I mean, we know now that the mortgage meltdown evaporated over 50% of the wealth of black families and over 60% of the wealth of Latino families. And so they also dominated the economics debate nationally. So the main frame before Occupy put inequality on the map was the debt ceiling debate. It was just austerity. I mean, we also didn't use the word austerity in the United States, but it's total austerity politics. It was like, because of the national debt, we cannot afford your entitlements.
0: Just like families around at kitchen tables around the country have to balance their books, so does the federal government that was the vibe
1: <laughs> that was the vibe and that that is so not the world we're living in i mean i think now you know post covid in, in this economic crisis they made a bunch of resources <laughs> available there was still a political fight over who they went to who benefited right but yeah it was the debt ceiling debate you know the consequence though of a multi decade war on the left you know this it wasn't that the situation was spontaneously like that in the wake of the financial crisis it was just that this was the neoliberal regime. I mean, who repealed Glass-Steagall and got rid of the Depression-era boundaries between retail and investment banking? Well, Bill Clinton and you know the Democrats in collaboration with the Republican colleagues. So, it there were all of these sort of betrayals. The political class had so failed people from you know the war on terror to the stagnating wages. To, you know, think about Hurricane Katrina. I mean, it just felt like there were all of these failures compounding. And in a way, you know, and that's why Occupy refusing to have demands and kind of just saying the whole system's broken, right, resonated with people. Because you can sort of ask, well, what was Occupy protesting? And But it's kind of more apt to be like, well, what wasn't it protesting? I mean, ostensibly, it was the banking crisis, but it was also money in politics you know, it was also debt. It was also the lack of good jobs, thinking you'll never be able to retire. I mean, it was it was everything because it was all connected. And, you know, it was such a powerful shift to go from watching these movements on the screen, you know, watching these uprisings in the Middle East and in Europe and then in Wisconsin to, to then being part of one and seeing how quickly it caught on because there were something like I, you know, over 900 encampments, maybe more, because I've heard that there were 400 in California alone at one point. I mean, so the public, even though the media was mocking us and saying that we were dirty hippies and we needed to get a job, regular people were sending those pizzas. There was Labrato's Pizza, I, I might be making up, I might be misremembering the name, but there was a pizza shop and they were getting orders from around the damn world, right? And regular people were sending supplies and starting occupies of their own because it resonated. It resonated for a group that wasn't the Tea Party to say, you know, shit is fucked up and bullshit.
0: And I think a big part of this was Obama's promise and then the reality of the Obama administration and this resulting pretty intense disillusionment. So many people who would go on to participate in Occupy had not only voted for Obama, but campaigned for him, invested these enormous hopes in his presidency. You remember those those hagiographic posters with his face, which are unlike anything we had seen before in American politics and unlike anything we'll see <laughs> again, I think. And then sell and then finally celebrated in the streets the night that he won. And I remember standing there in West Philly being pleased that he won, but also seeing this mass energy, around Obama being a sign that the left was not, didn't have any power or influence at all, really, um, and feeling very ambivalent at that moment. But all these people were out there in the streets in 2008. And then three years later, after Obama had spent three years standing between the people with their pitchforks and the bankers, things had changed pretty dramatically. How, How did that play out, that dynamic where this incredible ecstasy swung into disillusionment and then into Occupy?
1: I think it is important to remember that Obama ran on populist rhetoric, right? I mean, and yes, hope and change and all of that. And, you know, it's kind of tragic because liberals on the left stood idly by, you know, waiting for their messiah to to take action and basically, you know, missed the window when Democrats held the House and the Senate and and the presidency, right? I mean, it's just sort of like biding our time and going, okay, well, surely he's going to do something. And so you're absolutely right. It was, you know, Occupy and, and the research bears this out that, you know, a lot of people had participated in his campaign, had voted for him, had been hopeful and were disillusioned. And that was kind of, in a way, the kind of makeup of the group that at least was at Ducati Park or planned those protests. In other words, there were people who had expectations that were being thwarted, right? So, you know, a lot of people were students, but they're buried in student debt. Right. So this sense of downward mobility of not having their expectations be met. And I think that Obama was was part of that. And but then, you know, again, like it was evident the minute he took office, he had so many Wall Street bankers in his administration. I mean, it was pretty clear, you know, where where his loyalties were. It wasn't it wasn't like such a bait and switch. (laughs) It was such a disastrous failure because also this was a crisis he inherited. And there were even programs that he inherited, he failed to put to use. So there's the HAMP program, which was I think the Home Affordable Modification Program, which is supposed to help modify mortgages for something like 4 million households. And you know, under Obama, they helped a million. Meanwhile, you know, just millions and millions of people lost their homes, lost their wealth. And then they failed to act even as loan servicers were illegally denying people uh, access to these programs, I mean, the the degree of the criminal contempt for people who are suffering at that moment from the Obama administration, like, it's just really galling to remember. And so, you know, people often ask, you know, or people often say Occupy failed. And I just think to me, I'm, I'm like, no, the political elites failed. I mean, it's just, I was there the first day, it was ridiculous to think the 400 people in that park were going to overturn the power structure. <laughs> Right. I mean, they were they were saying this is broken. It was this prescient warning of the discontent, you know, and, and the the suffering, you know, that the system we have causes. And what's really sad is that that warning wasn't taken up speedily. Right. Like, in other words, it was the elites who caused the crisis that Occupy was responding to. And they failed yet again by refusing to, you know, see the writing on the wall or the writing on the cardboard signs in the park.
0: Let's talk about Occupy the Protest, which was, as we've talked about a little, in fact, many things. There was Occupy proper in Zuccotti Park in New York City, which included both the people camping out there f- full time, which was sort of the core, but then tons of regular visitors and sympathizers who came by the park maybe almost daily, maybe sometimes, maybe to attend Occupy protests. Then, as you mentioned earlier, there were Occupies. All over the country with their own full-time occupiers, their own less intensely involved sympathizers, visitors, protesters. I was in Philly working at the city paper at the time, and Occupy Philly was huge and a huge deal in Philly. So though New York looms largest, Occupy was often experienced and popularly interpreted through local occupations. I don't know that I've ever seen anything like this before or since. What was Occupy as simultaneously a national movement headquartered in Zuccotti Park and the series of local movements for which Zuccotti Park was an inspiration but not necessarily the primary reference point. And finally, then, what what, al- what allowed for Occupy's tactic to be so quickly replicated everywhere?
1: Yeah, and it wasn't just around the country. I mean, there were Occupys around the world. I was traveling, I think, in early 2012 and visited Occupy Dublin that was still going strong. I mean, they wow. were it was it became an international phenomenon. you know I went back and revisited the timeline and you know occupy gezi square you know in Turkey was after occupy wall street uh there was also uh the Hong kong protests, right so it had these like national re- like sort of repercussions and international and of course it was in its own way you know an, an answer to occupy syntagma square the m fifteen movement, the movement of the indignados as we've we've already said so yeah, there was no real the occupy wasn't wasn't a command center, but it was kind of an inspiration center, and part of the genius of the tactic of occupation is just that it's replicable. You know, you see it and you go, okay, I get that. So I go to a place that's highly visible and hopefully has some symbolic value. I bring tents and then, okay, we set up a library, we set up food distribution, we have some working groups, we have some teach-ins, I got this, you know, and it was something that p- people could do and they could see themselves in. And then, it, you know, in these cities, occupies became a kind of meeting ground. And I think that's, that's what their value is. That's why we can't end Occupy in November, you know, when the park was cleared Because more than anything else, what Occupy did was it created space for people to find each other. Again, a demoralized, atomized, alienated left, right? And you went there and you thought, I'm not alone. All of these other people are outraged. And the relationships that Occupy enabled and helped form, I think, you know, are still fueling the the left today, are still really um, powerful. Nathan Schneider, who was at the planning sessions for Occupy Wall Street and wrote a great book called Thank You Anarchy, says, you know, people went to Occupy thinking they were going to a protest and they found a school. And I really love that because again, it was a place for those of us who wanted to be part of social movements, who wanted to be quote unquote on the left to learn how to do it. You know, I didn't know how to organize my way out of a paper bag when I got to Occupy Wall Street. And it it was this forum for learning. And sometimes learning is going, well, I don't like that. I disagree with this. I think that's the wrong tactic. I think you're an idiot. (laughs) But it was like a place for those kinds of debates. So what I did when I got to Occupy was I did the thing I knew how to do, which was write and edit. And so I, with some friends from N Plus One, sorry, yeah, from N Plus One, the magazine and others, we launched something called the Occupy, Gazette. Actually, we called it an OWS inspired Gazette because we wanted to make clear we weren't like speaking for the movement, but we were inspired by it. And uh, we made five or six issues over the year. And what it did, what was great about it, was I was able to commission pieces from not just all over the country, but all over the world. So I commissioned pieces from Cincinnati, Occupy Atlanta, Occupy.
0: Nikhil Saval from Occupy Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, Nikhil Saval was one of the editors. He wrote a piece on Occupy Philadelphia, Occupy yeah. Wilmington, North Carolina, Occ- Occupy Oakland, which was like the really militant Occupy that my uh disabled sister Sonora Taylor was camping out at. And I remember tuning into the live stream and it was like this war zone with with um tear gas and uh and just seeing this little figure in a wheelchair on the screen and being like, oh no, you know, they're they're beating up my sister. Um, so there were, you know, and I Oakland got- Oakland
0: always turns things up to 11. <laughs>
1: Oakland, yeah, we got to give Oakland some credit here. Uh, they also it, you know, had an amazing action where they they shut down the port. That was a, a really powerful uh, show for us and, and brought in an interesting collaboration with the Longshoremen's Union. So that was, you know, it was really what interesting for me to get all these reports from the fields or from within occupied buildings or occupied homes and to see the sort of connecting threads or tissues and all of those. And, and it kind of reinforced for me, my personal desire to keep organizing around indebtedness because that was a kind of key theme that kept coming up. But but without a doubt, you know, those little groups all over the country, you know, sparked, sparked relationships, sparked campaigns. So I can speak to um, Occupy Athens, Georgia. I'm from Athens, Georgia. Uh, that the Occupy group renamed itself, called itself Athens for Everyone, and, you know, basically was, ran occupiers for the um, uh, the city commission, you know, so that's just like one story of what Occupy did in one one little town. And there must be thousands of those stories, and I just don't know them.
0: Yeah, no less of a card-carrying socialist than Baskar Sunkara wrote, quote, Occupy has been tactically adaptive owing in large part to a creative wellspring within the anarchist movement.
1: Kind words. I mean <laughs> he's you know it's true. I think this is why as as much as I you know say and said you know I'm not an anarchist I disagreed with these aspects I really appreciated the creativity and conviction and I I think that's really essential to movements and and this feeling that you're not taking your marching orders. When you got to the space of these occupations, you were invited to, to be creative, to be a participant.
0: And you could get plugged in right away to a significant role in this entire prefigurative universe, the libraries, kitchens, medical care.
1: Exactly, You know, and there was an immediate sense for people that they mattered, which is for people in this society is really huge. A friend also wrote me the other day something I think is important, and she said, actually two friends wrote this. They said that um, you know, Occupy also it didn't kind of have a radical litmus test. It was for the 99%. And so you could come there and be a bit uncertain, or you could be a liberal, or you could just be a tourist. You could be curious and you could participate. You were welcomed. And that meant that some of the messaging was often a little cringy, you know, but I, I think that was really powerful. Like it created space for people to learn. I mean, another friend, a friend, Wrote me and said that he had been an MSNBC watching liberal until Occupy. You know, but it was a place where people like that could come and be like, you know, what's going on? What, what is Citizens United? You know, what is capitalism? What actually happened in the in the banking crisis? And so that kind of wide open door, I think, is is really powerful, and it's something we need to keep in mind as we aspire to build a sort of broad based movement, right? A big left, a big tent. That sort of Spirit that you know believed in people and welcomed people. That said, to to Bhaskar's point about it being tactical, you know, when the camp was cleared, there was a drive among some people, you know, to occupy their spaces. So there were quite a few attempts to reoccupy to find new t- find new territory, and that was people started to mistake, in my view, a tactic for the goal
0: or for a strat or for a strategy.
1: Right, for a strategy, right? Like, and it was like, well, no, the tactic is a tool and maybe it's played itself out in this context. We are, we are outmaneuvered. Like we are not as powerful as the state and we are not as powerful as the police. And, you know, so I think the the offshoots of Occupy that were more generative were those that were like, okay, we need to take this movement and it's focus on inequality, the attention to capitalism and we need to, to carry it forward in less literal fashions.
0: Yeah, and that included immediate successors to Occupy, including Occupy Homes, which spun off in Atlanta and Minnesota, I believe. Occupy Sandy, this massive mutual aid operation in New York after Hurricane Sandy. Then something you know quite a bit about, Strike Debt's Debt Jubilee, which ultimately, if I have it right, led to the Debt Collective. There was also Occupy the SEC, whose comments helped shape the Volcker Rule, curbing bank leverage.
1: Right, and Occupy Sandy, you know, it was a really powerful thing because it was also a kind of moment of redemption for Occupy. So it was 2012, universally played, sorry, universally praised, praised by the New York Times, praised by the Department of Homeland Security, which (laughs) wrote a report that was like, wow, this decentralized relief effort really works. But, and it also has the interesting statistic that Occupy Sandy mobilized 60,000 volunteers Right. So these were the kinds of networks that were that that were formed uh, during Occupy Wall Street and that were there to be activated. So that was interesting. Um, yeah. And then, you know, strike that began as a working group at Occupy. So once again, David Graeber, as I mentioned, he recruited me and he said, you know, Astra, you know, there's this group forming and. For me, the insights really, really came directly out of my experiences at Zuccotti Park. I mean, I've told this story many, many times, but on my second or third day at Zuccotti Park, there was a young man and he was speaking in the voice of a carnival barker. And he said, step right up and write down what you're worth to the 1%. He had these huge pieces of paper. And I had to like take a breath and walk around the park before I went to him and got in line and wrote my $42,000 of student loans because I just hated facing that number. I had just defaulted on them. And the, this young woman behind me wrote down 120,000. And then these other people were writing their medical debt and their housing. It was something people were really discussing. And it was such a breakthrough because it was something so shrouded in shame up until that point. I mean, I had never been in public where we were all like, how much debt do you have? <laughs> I guess I'll never own a house. I me mean, neither. you know, I can't pay. And, you know, we went from, I can't pay to then going like, maybe we shouldn't pay. And that, uh, and so we began, as nerds do, we began researching the financial uh-huh. sector, you know, really digging into theories of financialization, but through an organizing lens, Like, what would it take to organize around this, to build strategic power around this? So it was actually at Occupy Wall Street in 2012, actually at Zuccotti Park, where the call for student debt cancellation was first raised. There was a big protest called 1T Day. It was the day student debt surpassed $1 trillion. It was organized by the Occupy Student Debt Campaign. And (laughs) I'm someone who does not forget, and I remember that Reuters and NPR totally mocked this action and said, "You know, the government's never going to cancel debt. And here we are in 2021. And in this year alone, thanks to the Debt Collective, which is the group I helped found that emerged out of this, uh, joe biden has erased almost 10 billion dollars in student debt alone now has he met his full campaign promise no and we're still organizing to make him do that but the fact is joe biden obama's vice president and mr former senator of delaware the credit card capital of the world the friends of you know the longtime friend of creditors campaigned on debt cancellation and that would not happen without occupy
0: yeah we're going to get more into legacy later but on this issue of of debt it's a very clear-cut one where things like the demand for the abolition of debt and the right to free college, neither of those things would be anywhere close to so prominent in American politics without Occupy. Yeah,
1: I'm biased, but I agree. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, One other thing we should mention about what daily life was like at the actual occupations proper with the food and medical care and books and so many of the other sorts of services that neoliberal society denies people was that ultimately a lot of homeless people join the occupations. And I think this proved challenging for the occupations in some ways, but it was also, I think, quite a beautiful thing. So many people taking care of each other that way.
1: It was was often phrased in the media as a problem. I mean, the media was so vicious to occupy. I went back and looked at some of it. I mean, there were so many gotcha pieces from the New York Times, from CNN, um, from the mainstream, you know, late night comedians of the day. Uh, And so, yeah, the question of, of, you know, houseless people at Occupy was raised, you know, as though it was, it was always framed as a problem and it was a challenge, right? Because, you know, as, as Occupy said, they're trying to build this, you know, kind of utopian society in the shell of a society that is like absolutely serrated by social division, by conflict, by poverty, by need. And, you know, there were definite, there's definite evidence that the NYPD, you know, was pushing people to come to Zuccotti Park, right? So there is a story actually in the Occupy book I edited that came out uh, from Verso in 2012, which has an interview with a guy who slept uptown and he was woken up. He had for years and everyone in the neighborhood knew who he was. And the cops sort of kick him awake one night and say, you know, there's a complaint about you, you need to go to Zuccotti Park. And the guy was like, I don't think anyone's complaining about me. I've been here forever. You know, this is actually my home. I, I sleep here every night. And it it is challenging to fill in the huge gaps created by capitalism. I mean, you know, Occupy could barely begin to To meet people's needs. I mean, we need so much. We need healthcare. We need education. We need mental health (laughs) care. We need, you know, all connection. We need meaningful work. And you know, I think it's kind of impressive how much Occupy was able to provide those things. I mean, on the the meaningful work front, one of the best signs that Occupy was always—I lost my job, but I found an occupation. And one of the favorite insults from bankers passing by was, "Get a job." (laughs) You know, hippie. Yeah, take a shower, <laughs> get a job. And it was like what they it was uh, they couldn't see that we were doing meaningful work. We were working, you know, and of course a lot of us had jobs. A lot of us had two or three jobs, you know. A lot of us had lost our jobs because they had freaking like sunk the economy, right? Like, you know, if people didn't have jobs, it was it was on them. But you know, Occupy was able to provide a kind of provide meaningful labor, even if it wasn't remunerated. So I do, I think one you know, to, to follow up on the, the comment though about um borrow homeless, I, one of the main things I think that local occupies actually transformed into, or maybe not main, but a dominant theme as, those, as local occupies evolved were actually groups that kept working with the homeless <clears throat> um, and kept up, you know, either um, various forms of solidarity, whether kitchens or defending homeless shelters and stuff like that. So I actually think there was a lot of awareness that emerged out of occupy and a lot of activism you know ultimately occupy was a response to a housing crisis and in that sense what's really tragic is we're kind of in an analogous moment you know as we sit on the brink of um an, an eviction crisis as you know the protections expire and unemployment benefits end and stuff like that it was in keeping with the reason we were there <laughs> just people are losing their homes and the society doesn't it doesn't support us i think what's interesting now though 10 years later now that we have an actual left is that we're talking about things like social housing like housing shouldn't be a commodity it shouldn't <coughs> be a speculative asset you should get to live in a home i don't know a product or something that you hope appreciates and values so you might be able to retire right that that kind of thinking i, mean, I think we said like housing's a human right at occupy but we weren't talking about like social housing let alone green social housing and so i think that's a sign of In a way, the situation today is worse in terms of objective conditions and wealth inequality. But I think the terms of the debate are a bit more astute.
0: We should also mention that Occupy definitely existed on the Internet, on Twitter, of course, and also on this amazing Tumblr where people posted photos holding up handwritten posters or notes, if I remember correctly, explaining what life experiences had led them to support Occupy, losing a job, debt, etc., and this was this moment also when people were trying to think about what the internet and social media meant for politics and activism. Sometimes I think in a hyperbolic or faddish way that didn't have a lot of rigor, <laughs> but but that doesn't mean that there weren't important things happening with social media and the internet. What what do you think that? The Internet meant for Occupy and for the left, more generally, that was reemerging at the time.
1: Yeah, you're talking about we the we are the 99 percent Tumblr. And so one thing before I get into the technology of that is, again, that for people to share their debt, to share their stories of hardship was so powerful because I think that's something that has been destigmatized a lot. And that's part of having a left where you go, okay, these are structural problems. It's not your personal failings. It's not that you failed to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Like you're impoverished by design. You're indebted by design. And so for people to come out and that, I mean, literally coming out, right. And saying, I can't make ends meet <laughs> was a really powerful thing. And the internet made it easy for people who weren't somewhere where they could go to an encampment and do it by you know holding that cardboard sign to add their voice to the chorus. Occupy was always this really neat mix aesthetically of, technology of Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. And then like these really, really just rustic or whatever, like simple cardboard signs, right? Like it had this mix of very lo-fi and and hi-fi together. I was writing at the time of Occupy, I was writing my book, The People's Platform. So I was thinking a lot about the internet. And one thing that stood out to me was that these pundits, People I was critiquing in the book as kind of social media internet cheerleaders were going on and on and on about the Arab Spring and the face, you know, and they would, you know, in Iran, it was the Twitter revolution and then Egypt was the Facebook revolution. And oh, did we hear a couple had named their child Facebook? (laughs) And, you know, I was always very skeptical of these guys too because they never talked about the need for a revolution at home, right? Like it was always some distant place that the internet was liberating.
0: And it always somehow seemed to end up just crediting U.S. tech overlords for spreading progressive social change elsewhere.
1: Exactly. Like those those people need our technology to bring, you know, we're bringing democracy to them through these, you know, basically colonial means.
0: Pat on the back, American capitalism.
1: Exactly. And I thought was really interesting was that the lesson, though, that all of us who had been watching these revolutions on live streams. The lessons we took from it was like, yeah, sh- yeah, it's important to get the word out. It's important to livestream, but what's really important is going in your body to a public place, right? So in other words, the sort of chattering class was fetishizing the tech and, you know, kind of, right, giving these Silicon Valley tools this credit. But regular people were like, oh, we need to meet in space as embodied humans and find each other, you know, and defy the authorities together in real time, in real space. And so I thought it was, I just was always very struck by the fact that people actually took, you know, they weren't taking a kind of determinist or tech fetishist lesson from these mediated, these technologically mediated revolutions. I mean, I I interviewed um Nalini Stamp, who was a very visible figure at Occupy and direct action, all sorts of working groups. And you know, she's been involved in basically every movement, you know, since then about Occupy's legacy. And she you know, she pointed out that, you know, in the United States, Occupy was the first movement that live streamed everything that had that constant, you know, updating of the Twitter feed. Uh, Transparency was a really big theme in Occupy, right? So people would would tweet out, you know, there was no messaging discipline, you tweet out all the ugliness, and all the conflicts and everything like that. What that enabled, in addition to sort of transmitting the tactics, right? Bring a tent, set up a food station, set up a library. What it did was it enabled all of these local Occupies to feel connected to the national narrative and to this global narrative. And it was the first time that we really, you know, sort of experienced that here in the U.S. And so in that sense, I think Occupy kind of changed protest in two ways. One, it brought back this kind of defiance and this this sort of, you know, yeah, we're not doing the choreograph thing. And then also, you know, and you live stream it and you spread the word that way.
0: Even critics of Occupy acknowledged almost immediately that it did a lot to change the terms of the political debate with this new emphasis on economic inequality, the 1% elite versus the 99% majority, and just like the return of class politics as a frame to think about what was wrong with America and the world, something that really was not much of a frame in American politics or hadn't been much of a frame in American politics for decades. And... Even beyond that, Sarah Jaffe wrote in 2013 that it wasn't just changing the narrative, but something really even deeper. She writes, quote, Occupy killed what British professor Mark Fisher, in his slim, cutting little book of the same name, calls capitalist realism. What did that new language feel like at the time, and what were its shorter and longer term impacts?
1: You know, it's interesting. The the claim that Occupy changed the conversation that first year, so late 2011, it's 2012. It, used to, it. It actually used to hurt my heart because I I just was like I want to do more than change the conversation. <laughs> you know I want to make the capitalist class quake. <laughs> you know it seemed very
0: to, insufficient.
1: It seems so <laughs> insufficient. And I think now though I'm like that that was no small feat. I mean it was so. I it was again. Kids, let me tell you how bleak it was. Right. And so part of why I threw down with Occupy. Was because I had been waiting, you know, since the demise of the global justice movement for some for a movement focused on class, on economics. I think what was powerful about Occupy, because to me they're connected, right? It was it was through the global justice movement that I learned, for example, about the politics of debt, specifically the sovereign debt crisis, neocolonialism through financial means, trade agreements, NAFTA, all of this. But there was something to the global justice movement that still felt a bit removed. like we're fighting for others occupy was so powerful because it was populist and it was like we're fighting for us we are the 99% and yes the 99% is actually global but it had this self interest that i think movements they don't all need to tap into that but it's really powerful when they do right the solidarity that can come from self interest when it's in that you know class conscious frame is just what i what i was craving i don't know it's just like and i was like okay this is a kind of silly encampment in a park but they're talking about class And I am in like I am in and people are like, are you going to make a documentary about it? And I was like, no, I'm not sitting on the sidelines, like filming the demise. I'm going to paddle like as fucking hard as I can, because like, if we don't start talking about the material conditions economic structures like we're doomed. So so yeah I think Sarah's right. I met you know and of course I met Sarah at Occupy Wall Street marching around and like many of us you know because again I was a documentarian a writer you know I think there were a lot of us who are journalists who chose a side. <laughs> you know and we we're you know Natasha Leonard famously got arrested on the Brooklyn Bridge she was a New York Times correspondent but you know I mean I think there're just tons of people where we were like we are not going to pretend that we're neutral, you know, in this, in, you know, we are going to infuse our work with a class conscious lens and sensibility um, and, you know, sort of be unrelenting about that. So, I, you know, I think changing the conversation was, was again, it was no, no small feat, but to me what Occupy did, it wasn't just a kind of narrative thing. Again, it opened the space where those of us who wanted to be engaged on the left, could then find comrades to start doing stuff, (laughs) you know. So, you know, it's really, you know, I just wrote a a piece about the um, 10 year anniversary of Occupy. I'm writing it with uh, Jonathan Smucker, who has been a guest on The Dig before. He wrote a great book called Hegemony How To. He was in the public relations working group at Zuccotti Park, which is how I know him. You know, and, you know, interviewing uh, people who went on to found the Sunrise Movement. You know, whose first experience with with activism was being 19, 20 years old and being at Occupy Wall Street or Occupy Los Angeles, and being caught up in the excitement, the effervescence, and then also seeing what didn't work about it, and being really intentional as they built their organization about taking the good parts <laughs> and trying to uh, leave behind some of the the stuff that didn't work. And so I I think that's one of its most powerful legacies, right? I mean, movements are always spaces to learn.
0: Yeah, really. I mean, there's so much to get into in terms of Occupy's legacy, but it just, in the most concrete sense, it radicalized so many individuals. It really radicalized a generational cohort, almost any sort of U.S. left or social movement organization. If you start looking at who active leaders are, especially active leaders who are somewhere in their thirties, we're talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people who now play key roles on the left who otherwise might not be doing what they're doing.
1: Sociological, the I mean, I'm, I'm not a sociologist and I don't even play one on the radio, but I have read that a big indicator of whether you're going to keep being a political person is participating in a social movement when you're younger, right? So there's no, you know, we don't want to be simplistic in our generational analysis, but there's no doubt that a a cohort can be formed, right, shaped by something. You know, I, I shudder to think of a world in which there was no Occupy and there was just the Tea Party responding to the financial sector. You know, and a, you know, and Occupy was very different than the Tea Party. It was allergic to electoral interventions. It definitely didn't have the same degree of billionaires at its back. I mean, Ben and Jerry's are no match for the Koch brothers. And we certainly didn't have a cable news network. You know, we did. We had Twitter and, and the live, The live streams, but but, yeah, I think those experiences can really shape a collective sensibility, you know, and we are it, it, and we don't quite know yet, you know what the ultimate ramifications are
0: in terms of the term the ninety nine percent a lot was going on there on the one hand, it gestured toward the fact that the left, after years on the margins and sort of getting comfortable on the margins that the left needed to engage in a majoritarian sort of politics to win. On the other hand, the term was criticized plenty, for especially for obscuring the many inequalities, particularly racial inequalities among the 99%. It also papered over the fact that the 99% includes portions of the rich and some very well-off upper middle classes. And interestingly, in retrospect, I think the 99% has had quite a bit less staying power than the 1%, which is still very much with us what What do you make of this maximally inclusive populist framing of of the we of the people?:
1: I don't think you can di- deny that it had power because it caught on like wildfire, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it was it filled this vacuum, and so whatever criticisms you have of the the term, it worked. People saw themselves in the ninety nine percent. People understood who the one percent was you know, and that was so refreshing to name the culprits, to name the them that is exploiting us. And so, you know, I think the job of addressing those fissures and those divisions, divisions of race, of gender, of geography, even, right, that's the job of organizing and solidarity. I don't think a slogan can actually do that, right? Like, I don't think it's just a messaging problem, like, oh, well, actually, I've come up with this term that unites us all while acknowledging our differences. And now we're all in a united front, like, no, I mean, that's like, that's a harder kind of work we got to do. So, I mean, I think it was messaging genius. And, you know, I, I think that you do need to dig into the percentages and be like, actually, it's actually the 0.01%, not the 1%, or actually it's the 10%, (laughs) one percent. if you're writing tax policy, you know, but we were, what we were trying to do as, as Occupy was break the spell of neoliberalism again, this capitalist realism point. And so I think the 99%, you know, was really a powerful frame to do that. Um, you know, Occupy also got a lot of heat for not having demands. Yeah, And in a way, I think that functioned in the same way, right, by, by, again, you know, there's the March and uh, May of that year that had lots of demands. I mean, to me, people would write these op-eds and they'd be like, Occupy is so silly. It doesn't have demands. And I just always wanted to say, you're the fucking silly one. Like, do you think that's how politics works? Like, you think that I, if I write up my demands just write and there's like no typos, and then I put on a suit and I go <laughs> and I deliver them to the powers that be that they're like, wow, your demands are so smart. <laughs> Let me implement them. It's like, no, this is a freaking power struggle. You know, I mean, Occupy was powerful because it, it's lack of demands What it did was it created space for again, liberals, leftists, for disenchanted working class people, middle class people to see themselves and then get sucked into a movement that was actually saying the whole system's guilty. We need such a huge transformation that we can't distill it in a single demand, right? Like it's not just repealing Citizens United, it's not just reinstating Glass-Steagall, it's bigger than that. So I think it was, you know, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't have movements that have demands. I mean, I've gone on and, and founded and organized a movement that has has demands, but I think Occupy did the right thing at the right time and was much more savvy than the critics on the sidelines gave it uh, gave it credit for. And I came to believe, in my experience at Occupy, that the real utopians are kind of the critics, right? Like they're like <laughs> this, they're like dreaming of the perfect movement that uh, doesn't rub ruffle the, their feathers the wrong way and that doesn't have any chaos. It doesn't have any people who are annoying. It definitely doesn't have a drum circle. I mean, I dream of such a movement too, but you know, that's not how it is. That's not what it is to organize. That's not what it is to engage with other people, you know, and as long as you kind of stay in that position of being the critic, then your ideas are never tested. You're you're always able to imagine, you know, how things should be done or what the outcome should be. And, And it's a really humbling thing to go from, from a kind of spectator to a participant You know, and to go from someone who kind of philosophizes to someone who organizes, you know, and I say that as someone who kind of made that leap during Occupy. And I can tell you, man, that organizing is a lot harder than making documentaries about philosophy and writing books.
0: And it seemed to be expecting something of Occupy that Occupy just couldn't deliver and sort of misunderstood what Occupy was My take is that Occupy couldn't in many ways do articulate more than it did. It was, I think, a necessarily open-ended, short-lived movement that allowed for everyone to come together precisely because the reality was that there was not really a left in existence at that time. There were not specific proposals or demands or a specific visions. The left's politics were inchoate at the time and so i think occupy precisely the role at least in retrospect that it ended up serving was for there to be a venue for a left that did not yet have its politics defined to begin to come together and have the conversations and take the actions that would lay the groundwork for the left to grow and come into its own it couldn't demanding that occupy do otherwise would have been putting the cart before the horse
1: yeah i completely i completely agree with that i mean in this piece that that Jonathan Smucker and I just wrote we at one point talked about occupy as a bridge and it was a bridge between the left of the late 90s right so the global justice left a very anarchist inflected left and the left we have today which is far less uh, ambivalent about leadership about structure about taking power uh, and is more socialist and it, you know it's really interesting because I think you know I felt, uh, like I was a bit against the current, you know. As much as I was a, a staunch defender of Occupy, and again wanted to paddle as hard as I could to make, you know, to be part of the movement, to be part of that uprising, I didn't think, oh well, what we'll have in ten years is like a revival of democratic socialism, you know. <laughs> I mean, I would have been very happy to learn that at the time, but you know, the the there was a different kind of mode of doing politics that was dominant, and it was, again, it did. You know, it had it had aspects that I that I want to honor. You know, it 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 respected people's autonomy. It aspired to cultivate freedom and equality, and you know, had a kind of commitment to consensus and really engaging people. But it also was, you know, kind of revelled in its weakness, right? So people talked about you know, you know, not taking power as if that was a good thing. <laughs> You know, that wasn't really, that wasn't where I was at. You know, that that wasn't the kind, again, that wasn't the kind of left I wanted to be part of. So I think Occupy was a bridge that paradoxically put us in the present moment, which has more of a connection to kind of the left of the thirties, right? So now people talk about the Green New Deal and these this language of a, a class conscious, you know, a, a kind of class conscious politics that's really different. I mean, it's not that they weren't class conscious. It's just that there was a different, it was really this this allergy to power. And I think now the left is, you know, open to sort of organizing on all fronts. It's like, yeah, you know, you have to figure out how to engage in electoral terrain and unions and labor organizing and debt and you know housing justice. And like what I think is a very, you know, kind of common sense observation, which is we have to do it all if we want to win.
0: <laughs> yeah. On Twitter, Matt Collado or Collado, uh, I might be mispronouncing he wrote on Twitter, quote, The fetishization of procedure which marked Occupy was a grand finale of the 90s Seattle-Genoa anarchist-influenced era. It provoked a backlash amongst the following Sandernista DSA generation, inoculating them against the previous generation's allergy to leadership. A lot of that seems right in some ways because it Occupy's horizontalism was informed, I think, by the sort of Gen X left's anti-globalization era, anarchist-infused politics. But then many of the millennials who tried that at Occupy went on to embrace and develop a more socialist politics that have become dominant on the left ever since then. Why why was it that Occupy functioned as this sort of hinge point at that moment?
1: I mean it's it's interesting. So as I said at Zuccotti Park that day there were a lot of people that I I didn't know but the people I did know were mostly from the global justice movement so David Graeber who had been you know, he wrote a book called Direct Action that was about decentralized organizing horizontalism. Marina Citrin who um, I believe she might even have been the one who sort of shared the technique of the people's microphone and she had spent a lot of time in Argentina writing about horizontalism and and these folks were absolutely pivotal in getting Occupy off the ground. And then once it it started going, even more sort of veterans of that movement came. So they had a kind of, you know, anarchist ethos. And that dovetailed with some of the other people who were from this internet politics, anonymous kind of crowd too, that was also, you know, we're a swarm, we're leaderless. And so there was, it was an interesting intersection of those worlds combining, and I again, I think I'm in this moment ten years later. Where I'm like, okay, well, but obviously something they did worked because right. I'm talking about Occupy ten years later, right? Like, because when we start getting too hyper organized, too rigid, then our move, then our movements start to be choreographed. They start to be predictable. They start to not be alive. Like messiness is a sign of life, right? So there's something to that that we don't want to lose if we want our movements to really live. I think I think what injected again, the global justice movement had this kind of distant quality. I think it was just the moment, you know, the post-crash moment where people were downwardly mobile. They felt this new level of insecurity, you know, I'm going to be worse off than my parents. And once you do that, once you start thinking about class in that way and capitalism in that really direct way, it leads you to socialist politics. It leads you to a different kind of thinking. And then also people just saw you know, some of the shit show, that's the technical word for it, you know, where claims to leaderlessness were, were not matched by reality, you know, and any, that wasn't a revelation from Occupy. I mean, there's the famous feminist Joe Freeman's essay, The Tyranny of Structuralistness, right. right? That a lot of times movements are claim to be leaderless. What it does, it just, it means there are leaders, but they're not accountable. And certainly that was the case. So there was the General Assembly in New York. I can only speak to New York, but there are all these affinity groups kind of doing stuff behind the scenes and, no, you know, nobody's accountable. Like, sure, you're you're autonomous, <laughs> but it's like, where is your where do you hook up into the whole? You know, how how do people actually know what you're doing in Occupy's name? And so, you know, people rightfully, I think, thought there has to be a better way. And so you see that even in Black Lives Matter, where people, you know, the refrain was, we're not leaderless, we're leaderful. And that was actually going back to Ella Baker. You know, so these questions of leadership, hierarchy, horizontalism, structure, it's sort of like the eternal debates on the left but i think occupy was a really dramatic example of the failures of a good of a, a well-intentioned move right like okay let's not be authoritarian let's not treat people like they're just puppets who have to show up to a march and then listen to these speakers and then like go home you know and let's
0: so not like, act like a weird stalinist you know call or whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> right like hey that, that was that, like not as much it's shitty in its effects It makes you feel shitty you know i mean i i've been to a million marches where I'm like okay you march and listen to the speakers and you just feel like why would i even show up you know occupy made it feel like it mattered that you showed up so so it was a, the intentions and the the spirit are actually right on you know things just get taken to an extreme and so you know dealing with these things is like why i went on up after occupy to make my film what is democracy and write my book about democracy which is all about how democracy is all these paradoxes right like we have to hold these tensions we have to be able to you know there's not some perfect recipe for like okay this much autonomy and this much structure like we're trying to figure those those things out but i think people this generation yeah. I mean, I think they're just starting on a way better foot by being like, yeah, we need institutions. We need an infrastructure. We need to cultivate leadership. That leadership needs to be accountable, but we also need to be democratic, small d democratic. This to me is a sign that the left is learning. It's not, you know, everywhere we want to be, but we've done more than change the conversation. You know, we're building structures that can help us be more powerful.
0: And it's easy to dis on dis- dis- anarchists these days as not having much of an impact on things but at the time they had the anti-globalization movement and then occupy to their credit and most members of socialist orgs and I'm sure this is going to annoy some listener most members of socialist orgs that you met at the time were just trying to sell you newspapers
1: it, it, they were so annoying i'm going to just get the hate mail with you like i like why would you want to be associated with them i'm sorry i mean and this is the thing this is why i was like at least my anarchist friends are doing things and like i have a little bit of an anarchist in me i'm not going to lie so Let's let's do it. And they built a movement that, again, with the 99 percent as the frame and the demandless frame actually was inviting to all kinds of people, (laughs) you know, and that also, again, that is to their credit. It wasn't a sectarian. It wasn't a sectarian movement. It was strategically open. And, you know, and again, here we are talking about it 10 years on.
0: And before we get any farther, we should probably pause to just have you describe what the General Assembly was and how it operated, including through the use of the peoples, Mic.
1: General Assembly was, you know, the most basic way you could ever imagine direct democracy. So, so again, you know, Occupy was, was born of a disappointment with electoral politics and with representative democracy, you know, is the sense that the people who represent us don't represent us, you know, they're completely marinated in corporate donations. And so it kind of Thing where okay let's throw the baby out with the bathwater, right like let's have no representation let's have have a direct democratic assembly and the inspiration had come from seeing these forums used to great effect in argentina in greece and elsewhere um and so occupy i think it, it ran on a system of modified consensus so you had to reach a 90 percent threshold you know and for something to pass and people could block proposals, which means that one person could stand up and say, you know, I'm so against this idea that I block it. And that I think it's important to to kind of give the um, I've never, I've never been a proponent of consensus. So I'm going to try to put aside my view and just say what the people who support it believe. And it comes from a laudable idea that, you know, everybody matters. We don't want to just have the 51% dominate the 49%, right? We want to find solution that people actually support, you know, and so we want to talk it out. Now, I think that that idealism sounds even more incredible. And actually, I almost feel a bit nostalgic for it in this moment, because I think we're so polarized. I mean, that's a word liberals use a lot. But I mean, we're just, it's like this radical left movement that was like, hey, we disagree, let's work it out together. Right? I mean, it seems very I almost can't imagine that today. And maybe there's something in that we need to revive. I'm not something sure. Something
0: either utopian or naive, depending yeah. on how one looks at it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so these were open. They happened twice a day. But you know, I in my memory, I'm they're always happening at dusk. They're like at the magic hour. And because uh electric amplification was illegal, people would use the people's microphones. So you would repeat so that people in the back could hear, right? You'd repeat this statement. So you know. You know, it felt to be part of them like you're part of this moving, breathing piece of poetry. And they were, uh, they actually were fine for running the camp. I mean, I think one, one thing Marina Citroen would say, who I mentioned before, is that, you know, these general assemblies work when there's very concrete things being decided. So, like, things were decided like, well, how do we do the laundry? This camp produces a lot of laundry. Should we buy some storage bins for the food station? Should we bail out our comrades at Occupy Oakland? Yes, we should, we have lots of money because we're Occupy Wall Street, you know? So yes, money should go to bail. Those, it was great for stuff like that. It was harder for things that were more lasting because there was such turnover, right? Like, because anyone could show up. So there was a weakness, right? You could have the right of voting essentially but without the responsibility of having to follow your decision through or even be ever coming back. Of course, blocks could be very contentious it's just not a model that scales, you know. And and by the end, they had really devolved. I mean, I remember one night. This was after the eviction, when there's kind of this like ghost of Occupy hanging out in the park, and people were Rump still having... <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just like really sad pseudo general assembly, and someone got punched, and it was live streams. And I was like, "This is bad, man. We need to move on," you know. Uh, so, but it it was a kind of political theater, and I you know, it's it. I don't mean that in a in a dismissive way, because theater can be really powerful. Like for people who have been completely estranged from small D democracy their whole lives, it was freaking exhilarating to participate in the General Assembly and be like, are we staying? Are we keeping the park? Are we moving? And you all decide together to stay, you know? I mean, it was like, it's completely energizing, but it was also doomed from the beginning and attempts. Some of the more experienced people involved in the global justice movement tried to swerve and pivot to a different model a spokes council model that had been used, you know, in the past in their movements. And like occupiers were not having it. Like they were just like so committed to the General Assembly.
0: I think they approved some sort of modified spokes system just like a week or two before the NYPD cleared people out.
1: It was so contentious, man. I think those were some of the the more intense meetings. And, And, you know, in my opinion, like the spokes council model is still too democratic. You know I mean? It's still not, it doesn't,
0: it's too well, horizontal. You, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's still too horizontal. Like, it but it was too
0: hierarchical for most, a lot of occupiers at the time. Yeah. Exactly. Even though it was very, that was a very standard structure from the anti-globalization movement.
1: Yeah. And, okay. So the spokes council model for people who don't know, it's just basically like, you have working groups, then the working groups are represented. So it kind of has a quasi, I guess you could say a quasi representative function instead of like every person, having to be there at the meeting at every time, right? Like it was like your spokes on a wheel and it would, what it, it was meant to do was as Occupy got bigger and unwieldy and there were a hundred working groups that those working groups could you know, meet at the spokes council and have a bit more efficiency. And uh, it was absolutely disastrous. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com.
0: Chris Brooks wrote on Twitter, quote, A common summation among organizers on the left is that Occupy didn't accomplish much of anything, or that it only changed the narrative around inequality, and how our pay-to-play political system works to the benefit of corporations. Do you think that Occupy is or was sort of underappreciated in retrospect by the American left, for a while, at least in the couple years following Occupy, it seemed as though people were really down on it, including Occupy veterans burnt out on, burnt out on the intensity, infighting, whatever. And then amongst people like New York Times financial columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin, it was, there was kind of this schadenfreude and gloating. He wrote a, a year after Occupy, started, quote, it will be an asterisk in the history books if it gets mentioned at all. But I don't think that's the case anymore, and I don't even think that was the case by midway through the last decade. As, as occupied Wall Street Journal editor Michael Levitin wrote in The Atlantic in 2015, quote, ironic as it may seem, the impact of the movement that many view only in the rearview mirror is becoming stronger and clearer with time, do you agree that the sort of retrospective assessment of Occupy, very much including on the left and among Occupy leaders and persi- participants, that 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 changed a bit?
1: I mean, I am sympathetic to people who felt burnt out and and had this sort of feeling of what the fuck was that like in the aftermath? Because it was kind of a vortex that we <laughs> sucked into, and it, it and there were ugly elements at the end. You know, I mean the. Because, this again, these directly Democratic structures were just unstable. And there
0: were some real toxic weirdos running around who these structures allowed to run around and disrupt things with impunity. I mean, like every occupation, I think, had a few Ron Paul and the Fed weirdos and all kinds of other people.
1: Yeah, I remember this one day really really vividly. This one guy who would consistently come down there with these horrible signs. I don't, they're just, maybe they're like anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic signs. And these two older women would just flank him and be like, who pays this guy to be here? Like he doesn't represent us. So in other words, like, you know, you had, and they just followed him around like for days on end until he finally left. But, you know, absolutely. That said, even a structured movement it is a challenge, a structured organization. You know, we, we're we're seeing all of these very well-organized nonprofits falling apart because of toxic personalities that their structures actually enable. So, I mean, I think these are, on some level, I'm like, when you're organizing with people or when you're dealing with people, you're going to have people problems, right? And so we're we're trying to create, we're still trying to figure out structures that are small d democratic, that in, ensure accountability, that don't, like ossify into oligarchy
0: right and when you're not the authoritarian right and are trying to resist the iron law of oligarchy you're all you're not going to be able to just snuff out the difficulties of dealing with human beings
1: (laughs) yeah and that's as you know in as as is the case in so many areas the left's job is harder because we're you know actually (laughs) pro-human so yeah i think it made i think it made sense i mean i would say to be totally honest there was even a period When Bernie's 2016 campaign was, you know, sabotaged and Trump was on the rise where I was like, freaking fuck, I've, you know, contributed to this populist energy. I mean, I went to some Trump rallies as part of my work on my film, What is Democracy? And, you know, I was like, this guy's got all of this anti-hedge fund messaging. Like I was, it was almost like he was about to condemn the 1%, you know? And so... I guess I'm just saying that I've had my own, you know, conflict about it as well. But I think what what I couldn't see as I went off with my offshoot to organize around debt was all the other offshoots, all of those other projects, all of those other people who were actually wrestling with the same issues I was, or who had been kind of generally awakened by the new class conscious discourse in America and were joining DSA. And so that's why I, I agree with Michael that you know, we, we don't have a full accounting of the impact yet. I mean, I was listening to some people who more closely aligned with the labor movement talking about Occupy's impact in that space and the fight for 15, right? I mean, right. there are all of these ways that Occupy influenced these other domains that I don't feel like I have the personal you know sort of uh, credibility to speak to because I'm not sort of in the weeds like I am around debt and stuff like that. But you know they were saying, yeah, this was a huge... A huge sort of revitalization for a more bound, you know, labor movement. So yeah. you don't know, and I think this is one, one thing. You know, I definitely got this from reading "Hope in the Dark," which is a book Rebecca Solnit wrote in 2003 or 4. Sort of much in the aftermath of the Bush Wars and and the left feeling so beaten down, which is that you know you kind of never know how the seeds are going to sprout. And and you can do your best like, you know, I feel like I've really been tending to the dead seeds and trying to build that into a force to be reckoned with. But like, you don't know in, you know, late November of 2011, like what Occupy is going to germinate.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many, there's so many seeds that ultimately sprout And you mentioned with labor fight for 15 and I can't draw the specific connections, but I imagine there was a huge impact in terms of laying the groundwork for the newly militant left-wing teachers union movement. And even during Occupy, which obviously wasn't labor organized or directed by any stretch, when labor did show up, it was really effective to stop Mayor Bloomberg's eviction attempt on October 14th, which I was present for, which was a success, the supposed cleaning of— zuccotti park which he backed down from or to participate in occupy mass protests. so labor labor was not at the lead of occupy but their connections were being made
1: yeah 100 percent. i mean also can you say what a shit thing that was for for his whole bloomberg's whole refrain to be i need to clean the park i mean it sort of played on the dirty hippie dirty hippie yeah they're disgusting um,
0: these people. Yeah,
1: they're disgusting, these people. And yeah, you're right. Organized labor threw down and did these like mass text alerts and got people to go and defend uh, Liberty Plaza or Liberty Square or whatever it was being called. The Transit Workers Union was another early and powerful ally. You know, I think those moments are are really significant. I think uh, I did, you know, doing my research and remembering some of this period. Also, Mayor Bloomberg's girlfriend was on the board of Brookfield Properties.
0: <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. We're doing our reading as well. I was like, huh, <laughs> I didn't remember that.
1: You know, there was so there was that was the thing. There was a lot of learning, you know, to be done. I mean, so I think you're you're absolutely right. There were these connections formed with labor. There was also you know, a radicalization against the police. There was a lot yeah. of kind of naive. The police are part of the 99 percent right. messaging. I don't know if you remember, there was this hipster cop who became kind of iconic at Occupy.
0: He was like a plainclothes, uh, Natalie-dressed, young, hipster-looking cop.
1: Right. I mean, but he was still a fucking cop, you know? Yep. And these things became more apparent. I mean, the week of the mass arrests on the Brooklyn Bridge, when over 700 people were arrested, there was a donation of $4.6 million from Jamie Diamond. Diamond. Sorry, he needs to have that D on the end of his name. Yeah, I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I thought his name was for a long time. <laughs>
1: you know, um to the NYPD. You know, and basically the sense of like, yeah, Wall Street and and the NYPD are you know working together and went mm-hmm. on the same. And that that I think you know in no way can that can you take credit for the amazing work against the criminal punishment system and you know. Uh, police that's happening today, but I think it was really radicalizing for a lot of people who were part of Occupy, who had never had hostile encounters with the police before, to see just the want on violence and um the contempt that they were treated with.
0: Yeah. And it, it did kind of start, I think Occupy in a lot of complex ways did start to intersect with what were really BLM precursors around Troy Davis, who was executed in Georgia during Occupy's early days on September 21st, and then around Trayvon Martin's murder, which took place just a few months after Occupy started. And then, as you're saying, the NYPD had a major impact on the course of Occupy, and I feel like the repression mostly pretty much backfired, which is not to trivialize or romanticize what in some cases were pretty horrible costs of this repression, including Really, a really serious injury suffered by the Iraq war vet Scott Olson in Oakland. But there was all of this repression, and though activists obviously and rightly decried police abuses at the time, it seems to me like it did more good for the movement by helping draw more attention to it than it did in terms harm, than it did harm in terms of by taking people off the streets and putting them in jail. Because both the September 24th Mass arrests and pepper spraying of activists, and then the October first march across the Brooklyn Bridge, which, as you mentioned, led to the NYPD making more than seven hundred arrests. These were both things that generated just like massive amounts of attention.
1: Yeah, it is true. I mean, Occupy was sort of catapulted into the mainstream media by these incidents and by these viral videos of police violence. I mean, there were some too that you know we forget, but that were really major. So I remember this. Young activist Megan Linick and I actually had her write an account of it, uh, filmed on her BlackBerry, so that dates this movement. <laughs> um, as these NYU students were going to a Chase branch to close their accounts in protest, and the cops started basically dragging people from the sidewalk into the bank and beating them up and arresting them all when they were just going in there in a very—they weren't doing a sit-in; they were just saying, "You know, I'm against." Your role in the financial crisis. I'm closing my account, for which they were arrested and held for over 30 hours. So, and that video got over a million views. And that was that was novel at the time, right? To have these moments sort of be transmitted and circulated. A lot of that was anonymous. Was amplifying these things, and they had such an enormous reach on online. And I think you know, Occupy. What people had to get their minds around was that cops protect capital. I mean, that's what. That's who they are serving. They're protecting. They're protecting property, not people, you know, and ultimately they're protecting profits. And that's actually something, you know, that is a really core insight. And they were, you know, there to smash heads when the time came. And I saw, you know, a lot of people get thrashed. You know, at my time at Occupy, and certainly it was happening. I think there were over eight thousand Occupy-affiliated arrests around wow. the country, uh, and millions of dollars. I think Oakland paid out over ten or eleven million dollars of damages. You know, so the public's paying for that too, right? We're paying for the violence that this that these forces are perpetrating. Um, so yeah, there were there were these again. That's sort of the teachable moment, right? <laughs> because it was it was definitely a shock. To some people's systems to see
0: this stuff. We've been talking around this for a while, but Occupy, in terms of its legacy, it stood at the beginning of this cycle of social movements that would become and shape the left's resurgence. Chicago Teachers Union strike in tr- 2012, Standing Rock in 2016, Black Lives Matter in 2014. Before that, as I mentioned before, these BLM precursors, and there was also particularly among Latino youth, increasingly militant protest against the Obama administration's mass deportations tied to a related struggle against Arizona's SB 1070 anti-immigrant law. And then came Bernie 2016, Bernie 2020, the most recent Black Lives Matter movement, the explosion of DSA beginning in 2016. And with Bernie and DSA, the the connections are, for me, extremely clear. For me, it's important. It's impossible to imagine either taking off the way they did without Occupy. But more generally speaking, to what degree did Occupy create this new American left in all of its variety? And to what degree did it more mark the emergence of a newly emergent left that was fueled by a ton of different factors? Yeah, I
1: don't think you can say it created it. You know that gives Occupy too much credit, but uh, it was it was the opening salvo, right? Like it helped inaugurate this new era. Again, it was a an it was a it sort of foreshadowed what was to come, and I do think I do think it contributed in some really direct ways. You know, one is it it brought back this kind of defiant protest, like, you know, yeah, we don't care that there's no permit. (laughs) We don't care if we're gonna have to fight the police. Like we're we're you know, going to have a more sort of militant ethos, it also, you know, injected this class analysis that has been carried forward in these movements, right? I mean, even the protests against gun violence were highlighting the gun lobby and highlighting the profits of the weapons manufacturers and things like that. I mean, there are, there are spaces where I know there are direct ties. I mean, you mentioned the murder of Trayvon Martin. And certainly, you know, occupiers were directly connected with Dream Defenders, which is the amazing socialist racial justice group that emerged in Florida at the time they occupied the Capitol. You know, I believe Nalini Stamp, who was, I mentioned already as being really a key figure at Occupy, helped form that group. And there was, you know, a kind of connections or influence there. But, you know, again, it's not created. It's like social movements are these generative things, you know, and, and we, See people doing things, and it inspires us to do them. And so there's this kind of free exchange that I think can't be reduced to to causality. But it definitely, it definitely helped kick off a social movement renaissance. And throughout it all, I have been like, when is this gonna dry up? You know, like when are we gonna have another period like the aughts? And I'm I'm really happy, you know, that we that we haven't done that. You know, certainly I agree with you that you can see these direct links to Sanders, to DSA. Sanders, of course, you know, then inspires AOC, inspires the squad. But there's also been an incredible resurgence of leftist candidates at the local level, and and including a lot of occupiers who ran for office. Um, So you mentioned Nikhil Saval, who is now a state senator in, in Pennsylvania. You know, I always point to Jillian Johnson, who is uh, basically the mayor of Durham, North Carolina. She was really prominent in Occupy Durham and Black Lives Matter. There is Sandy Nurse, one of them, you know, I, who I just picture leading Occupy Direct Actions, who just want to, or is the presumed victor to win her primary, uh, is heading to to New York City Hall representing Brooklyn. I mean, so there's lots there's lots of examples of that. It would be interesting. I've never seen a full accounting, you know, of occupiers who kind of Basically, you know, have gone on to occupy traditional politics and have done so in a way that addresses a lot of Occupy's concerns about co-option, right? And how did how do they do that? One, they're deeply connected to social movements, and two, they're they're funded by small dollar donations, right? Because Occupy was all about money in politics, Citizens United, and all that. And so, you know, it also helped popularize. This is one point that that Sandy Nurse, I think, is really clear on. You know that. Occupy made these campaigns possible in a way by by educating the public about kind of the political economy of elections. Like if you don't fund it, you don't own it. You know, if you don't fund it, they don't represent you. They represent their donors.
0: And so it's had this huge impact on on the left, but also had an impact on politics more generally. It laid the groundwork for Bill de Blasio's Tale of Two Cities 2013 mayoral campaign, which obviously didn't turn out to be anything close To what everyone was hoping for, but it did play a big role in making inequality and kind of the inequality of the Bloomberg years, the NYPD enforced inequality of the Bloomberg years, the defining feature of New York politics. It was key in Elizabeth Warren's early rise, whatever came of that and whatever you think of what came of that. And it also also arguably played a key role in laying the groundwork for Obama to stigmatize Mitt Romney's private equity background in the 2012 presidential election. So this is really something that just swept over American politics in its entirety.
1: You're right. It's easy to forget uh, the Romney stuff. I do think that Occupy unwittingly aided Obama in that sense because- Ironically as well. Ironically, because there there were two comments that he made that kind of helped sink his ship. One, he very condescendingly told an audience that i think included occupiers from occupy new hampshire that corporations are people my friend
0: um, <laughs> That's such a good line
1: <laughs> which was completely just like out of touch with the vibe in that moment and then he made his famous 47% mark, uh, remark right so occupies out there talking about the 99% the 1% and he says well there's the 47% who basically are the takers you know leeching off the makers and you know that That was the end of Mitt Romney. And it
0: was a private it was a private event, but it was a private event with with uh, service workers uh, employed who one of whom decided to record it.
1: (laughs) That is that is solidarity. I mean, you know, what's interesting, though, is what what did that show the Republican Party? Well, that they need to talk populist. So as a result of that, we're kind of in a more dangerous moment, right? Because Trump, as I said, you know, he, he was totally happy to have these jumbatrons denouncing hedge funds, you know, and just saying all sorts of bullshit. Well, ultimately, you know, hating on the 47% <laughs> and representing the 1%. I mean, so politics, I guess, has just gotten all the more confused.
0: Returning to something we were talking about a little bit earlier, I'm not entirely sure Why? But Occupy laid the groundwork for the rise of a new left in a way that the anti-globalization movement a decade prior to Occupy did not. In part, I think the anti-globalization movement was smothered by 9-11. That's pretty obvious. But I also think that it was protesting the emerging contradictions of neoliberalism at the height of neoliberal legitimacy and power in the 90s. So the mass support that that movement and the Nader 2000 campaign the mass support that those things could draw upon was, was ultimately relatively thin. But 2008 was this thorough indictment of neoliberalism, and it put the system into something much closer to a legitimacy crisis. Do you think that's what made the left so much stronger after Occupy? It's just on some level, it's a question of before or after 2008.
1: Such an interesting question. I'm I'm happy that you helped answer your question because it's, I mean, I think this is something we kind of have to ponder through. I mean, I I am a materialist. So I think the material, the objective conditions contribute to the state of the left. And so, I mean, things were hard for people in the late 90s and aughts, but compared to today, wages will buy you even less. People are more indebted. (laughs) Housing values are even more inflated. You know, I mean, our politics is... Even more sort of paid for by the corporations because we've seen these restrictions on campaign financing come off. We've seen more voter suppression. So I think you know, yeah, we're in a post two thousand eight reality. And people, you know, on the one hand, you know, I mean, people are responding to the times and to the the, the crisis, the, the everyday crises of their of their lives. I do think it's just interesting. You you remind you putting those two things together because that, that was me at like, whatever 19, like watching the global justice movement in Nader. And I think on the one hand, as I said, the global justice movement, I mean, for me, it was like hugely edifying and important because it got me thinking about finance and all of these things. But as I've said multiple times, it it was distant. And if you wanted to root yourself in that movement, then it was like, go to a local direct action network training. You know, it wasn't join DSA. So it had this, as, as critics have said, you know, it was all about sort of summit hopping. So you go from one big protest to the next. It didn't have a lot.
0: Trying to repeat the miracle of Seattle, which could never quite happen again.
1: Right. And it couldn't happen for very obvious reasons. You couldn't shut down another ministerial meeting of the WTO or, you know, the conferences being held by the IMF because they knew you were coming. Like you only get to surprise them once and the cops just are more powerful. And you know, they the next round of the WTO meetings were held in Qatar. Like, sorry, you're not going to shut it down <laughs> it's just not going to happen. So yeah, people got stuck on this sort of repetition and you know it was theater and it was kind of bad theater. And then the Nader campaign, you know, people can debate that endlessly, but it was like going for the gold without building the necessary bases and structures, right? That could sustain a left. <laughs> yeah, it
0: was like going for that buzzer winning shot from way behind the I don't know what the middle of a basketball court is called the, the mid, the middle of the court or whatever.
1: From like the back of the court from like outside the building, you know, it's just like, you don't, I mean, you know, to me now, I'm just like, that is such hubris. Like you have to do the work of building institutions and infrastructure. You have to do the work of organizing and also like, wow. So you're going to mobilize all these people and then just fizzle away. And there's nothing for them to be like engaged in or involved in it was one thing for Occupy to not have structures to like onboard people into because it was literally planned by like 20 people you know most of whom were 20 somethings <laughs> like I I I don't hold them I don't hold them to to task for that but like I don't know so I guess you know that period even though that period was not as bleak as the odds the post 9-11 period that came after it I mean that's 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 the left was not anything to write home about then you know and I'm not you know I just think you know, the left has to give people structures to engage with. That's why labor unions are so important. It's not just that they can challenge capital in in this unique way, you know, at the point of production or the point of service or whatever. It's like, they are also ways for people to, to be together, (laughs) to understand themselves in a, in a sustained fashion to like, just seem like the left wasn't thinking like that back then. I don't know. What do you remember? I mean, I was also like a kid. So my, that's my, that was my take.
0: I was an even younger kid. (laughs) I was in high school. Yeah. I feel like the height of neoliberal globalization was producing a ton of disaffection, both in terms of like middle class kid ennui about feeling smothered by, you know, smothered by a panoply of corporate logos and branding and feeling like that was snuffing out any kind of space for authentic... Living, or on the other hand, if you were concerned about the environment, the way that corporate America seemed to be destroying it rapidly, or if you were a Midwestern former factory worker who had lost their job due to globalization and was militantly anti NAFTA. So there were all these contradictions amongst different segments of the American public that were taking shape in the 1990s. But The contradictions weren't leading up to a truly earth-shaking legitimacy crisis for the system. The system was still dominant. The system still enjoyed widespread support and legitimacy. And after after 2008, that was no longer the case.
1: I agree. You know, it but the legitimacy crisis that we're in is so dangerous because the is isn't strong enough to capture it. Right? Yeah. And this is again, why I think occupy was this warning and the people who failed were the elites who were having a baby crisis of legitimacy and are now having, you know, a full blown <laughs> adult case. I don't know. And it's like, yeah. because
0: be careful what sort of legitimacy crisis you wish for, because when the, when this all started, you know, it was immediately the tea party that, w- that moved first.
1: Right. They moved first and they, you know, but now what, how this crisis manifests is, you know, a total conspiracism. You know, I think we see it in the, uh, you know, conversation around COVID. We see this. Vaccines, QAnon. Yeah. QAnon. And, and, you know, this is, this is why, you know, I wrote in a piece that the suppression of the left is a literal fool's errand, right? Like if you suppress the left and there are no structures for people to participate constructively and to channel their discontent constructively right to learn about <laughs> why it is that the powerful you know aren't responding to them or why it is that you know they they you know can't uh, achieve the American dream then it you know without those spaces then you know yeah, you just end up with people going into these virtual wormholes and like coming out with these absolutely like toxic, racist, destructive interpretations. And that's where we are. And that's why, you know, I think the left is on the the whole better off than it was 10 years ago for doing our kind of looking back thing. But the culture as a whole is in a way more dangerous place.
0: One thing that we should talk about that I meant to get to earlier is that the movement was disproportionately college educated people from middle class backgrounds and amongst the actual occupiers, often people under 30, pretty young. Many, though, were also underemployed or recently laid off or heavily indebted. It was, in short, disproportionately made up of the sort of downwardly mobile middle class that would later form the core of a revitalized DSA and the 2016 Sanders campaign. And so, unsurprisingly, there was plenty of criticism at the time and afterwards of the whiteness of Occupy, though by most accounts, the protest got way more diverse over time. And there's always an extent into which a certain emphasis on the disproportionate whiteness of something like occupy it really ob- obscures the mix of people who were there and whose lives were ch- lives were changed by occupy i think it's clear though that occupy's whiteness and the persistent disproportionate whiteness of of different corners of the left is a problem but the the question is if we're interested in solutions what is the origin of that problem, because I think this critique about representation is vitally important, but I also think these critiques are too often made in a moralistic rather than strategic way.
1: Definitely, you know, there was you you referenced it. There's the the, the sociological paper by Ruth Mokman and others that did a kind of data analysis and found, yes, you know, these the occupiers we met uh, and studied, you know, extrapolating from their commentary, you know, are younger, downwardly mobile, indebted. Again, they're kind of a disappointed generation or a generation that's being let down. That said, I do think the movement, you know, diversified as it grew. And certainly when we talk about some of the issues at the camp, you know, who was actually holding down the space and camping in the park at the end, these were not middle-class folks who were there. And different occupies had different class characteristics and makeups. Which is not to say you know it's not to say that the the problems you're raising weren't problems it's just that i think there there is some some nuance there you know but certainly occupy never reflected the 99% this idea you know that we are the 99% was always aspirational and wasn't reflected in the movement's demographic makeup I don't know. I mean it's 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 a tough it's a tough issue because as you said it's a problem that lives on on the left in some corners of the left. I guess I have multiple thoughts. One is, well, I'd rather white people be organized than not in socialist movements. So, you know, I just want to. I think it's important to just say that. Like, I'd rather have people. I'd rather have white folks be joining DSA than gravitating to QAnon, which is something white folks seem to really like to do. So, I just want to state that. The other thing is, I think when we talk about our movements being diverse you know you mentioned that it was kind of moralistic i think we have to think about it in strategic terms and i mean that in in two ways we don't want diverse movements just to be nice we want diverse movements because we need everybody to win <laughs> you know and that is that is it like our survival our it is bound up with other people Joining and us forming not just coalitions but alliances, right? I mean, this is a strategic point. This isn't about us like looking good or something like that. This is like we, we need this. The other it's strategic, but it's strategic in a, another sense, which is if you're actually focused on economics and material issues, be it in debt, debt like I am, be it housing, employment, you know, and labor, what you will do is actually find that those, those issues are racialized. Right, like when we start following the chains of predatory finance, what we find is that you know the people who are most buried in student debt, far from being the image of like the white MFA graduate who has just thought they could (laughs) make a living writing poetry or something, actually black women are the most burdened by student debt, (laughs) and that it's black students who are you know defrauded by predatory colleges who hold these enormous debt burdens without gaining any of the benefits of education. So it's like if you actually do. Economic work, right? If you actually are doing politics, that's not just—it's uh, not just about feelings or sentiment or whatever. But it's actually like, okay, let's talk about material reality. Then, it, if you're doing that, you have a strategic reason for diverse people to join and come together to fight for their shared liberation.
0: Yeah. In in an essay, Michael Dawson wrote, "Quote: The decline of progressive Black politics is apparent in the Occupy actions." that have swept the country to protest economic injustice. And so there were historical dynamics at play within black politics and civil society as well. And we could identify similar dynamics at play within a labor movement that had been under attack for decades when we're trying to understand why is this particular demographic coming to the fore of social movement left in a disproportionate way at this moment? And it's precisely, as you said, why the moralistic critique so misses the mark that the moralistic critique often hits is just setting off bouts of useless white, middle-class guilt. Instead, we need a strategic analysis, then, now, into the future, of who's in our movement, who's not, who needs to be, and how to make that happen.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean to your point, I think it's I, I do want to say I think it's really important not to erase all of the people of color who were active, not yes. just like participated in Occupy, but led it. I mean, many, I many, many. I mentioned <laughs> Sandy Nurse, I mentioned Milani, but I mean that is like the tip of the iceberg. And I do feel like that's one aspect of that conversation that it kind of can obscure mm-hmm. <laughs> the participants and leaders. I mean, people didn't call themselves leaders that Occupy, but that's in, in, in effect what. But they were. <laughs> yeah, but that's in effect what they were. I mean, I you know, and I I think the thing is, you know, we have to make our movements, this is sort of organizing more generally, but we have to make our movements worth people's while. I mean, I don't blame working class people, you know, and I mean, working class in in the diverse sense, not like I'm not conjuring, like, you know, the working class white man, but, you know, real working class people for thinking, why would I go to Zuccotti Park in those first few days and like sleep in this square? Like, what's that doing? I, you know, I have kids to feed. I have a job or two, you know, I'm trying to make ends meet. Like, you know, it it took a while for Occupy to prove that it like had the courage of its own convictions and it was having an impact. And then again, it started to attract more people and more support. And I think, you know, we don't have to do that in our movements through, you know, showing that we can hold a a plaza, but we do it in the debt collective, for example, by saying, organize with us and we will try to keep two horizons in mind. One, the kind of seemingly utopian horizon of canceling or abolishing, as we like to say, abolishing all predatory debts and winning the public services we need. So getting rid of student loans, having free college, getting rid of medical debt, having universal healthcare for all. But there's a good chance that actually we will help you with your debt along the way. And by challenging and disputing debt you have in collections that you know is probably where, where the creditors are probably breaking the law, Helping you find some creative legal strategy. You know, in other words, there, there is a chance there will be a material benefit to you. We will also, you know, help relieve the shame and stigma you feel around your indebtedness. So there will be a psychological benefit and you will find that you are not alone, which is our you know, one of our slogans. So I think we have to. This is the strategic point. Like, if we want our movements to be more diverse, like we have to, it's it's not, it's not just about making space for people, it's giving people strategies that respect the fact that they lead busy lives and they should, they probably wanna join something that has a chance of having a material impact.
0: A question someone on Twitter wanted me to ask you, why should organizers study Occupy? What can we learn from it?
1: It's both for the mistakes that Occupy made. So it is a, you know, it is a parable about the pitfalls of consensus processes and, and direct democracy and claims of leaderlessness, but also because it's a reminder that you don't know what's going to work. And so I think it, it has this sort of like both a, a warning and an inspiration, right? Like the things, Occupy was innately contradictory. The, its, its strengths were also its weaknesses. So its openness made it chaotic and invited conflict, but it also made it welcoming and made all these people show up and made people bring their whole selves and their creativity. And so I think that is something that, Organizers need to, we we need to keep that in mind. Like they're they're, this is a kind of contradictory process. We can try not to like run headfirst into these pitfalls, <laughs> just like do things that are definitely doomed to failure. But then also we need to keep that openness and that spark.
0: Lastly, you wrote on September twenty third, two thousand eleven, in N plus one's Occupy Gazette or. Occupy-inspired gazette, which I guess was the technical name, quote, I find the lack of historical knowledge about past movements and effective strategies and tactics and institutions to pass such wisdom down so depressing. Each wave of kids reinvents the wheel, believes they fashioned it for the first time, and then there it goes, off the rails. I hope a fraction of them go on to dig in for the long haul and build some sort of infrastructure so the next generation isn't repeating this pattern. There are, of course, the people radicalized by Bernie who quickly become self-described anti-electoral revolutionaries once Bernie loses. But generally speaking, do you think that the left today has indeed avoided repeating that pattern?
1: I do. I mean, I think compared to the time to when I wrote that, we have come a long way. I mean, it's. To the question you just asked me about why we need to study occupy, I mean, I do think, as I wrote there, it's really important that organizers study history in part because it's just vital to see the way that people have you know responded to the conditions, not of their choosing <laughs> and you know, I think you know right now there's probably a lot to be learned from studying the the movement of the unemployed during the Great Depression and how it took a while for organized labor to realize that actually they had a vested interest in in like organizing unemployed people um you know, I think. The welfare rights movement has so much to teach us at this moment, you know, and part of why we study those, the past is not just to learn about the strategies that our comrades of your used, but to learn about the reactions and the counter attacks and the way those movements were sabotaged um, by corporate and political elites, you know, so that we can better prepare for those things because all of that is real too. Um, but I see, I definitely see, um, that we've invented some wheels and we're kind of holding it together, you know, and I think this is why I take, you know, I, I'm so happy that institutions like DSA are flourishing. And I really hope people don't take them for granted, you know, because it's easy to kind of not understand how precious something that you've just kind of joined or is, you know, always been there actually is, right? And that's why I think it is important to remind people of what it was like during the aughts when we were like running away from the the, the pseudo-socialist organizers with their newspapers because these, these are the things that are going to help build a left that's, you know, robust enough and actually can sustain itself over time so we can fight the incredible entrenched power that we're up against. Uh, and so, I think we've made progress. And that if I went back in time and described where we are today to the Astra who wrote that reflection, I'd feel that Occupy was worth it overall.
0: Well, Astra Taylor, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan. It was fun.
0: Astra Taylor is a regular guest host here on The Dig, a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She is co-founder of The Debt Collective, director of multiple documentaries, including What is Democracy? The author of books, including, most recently, Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the beginner who has learned a new language always translates it back into his mother tongue, but he assimilates the spirit of the new language and expresses himself freely in it only when he moves in it without recalling the old and when he forgets his native tongue. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. The Dig is recorded at WBRU in Providence. Our communications coordinator is Tamoos Frankel. Our senior advisor is Via Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives and freely available copies of the Dig newsletter at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the show, why you listen to it, why they should listen to it, etc. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.